Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 you betcha and a good afternoon to you five minutes after five o'clock here on your thursday third day of september exactly 60 days out from the general election in november much to talk about on today's program dr jeff gusky is going to join us later on in the hour he is a emergency room physician. We've talked to him before. He's discovered some alarming information in relationship to the current spate of high levels of air pollution here in the Bay Area related to all the fires over the last couple of weeks and COVID. And I think this is going to set you back on your heels. So stay tuned for that conversation coming up tonight with Dr. Jeff Gusky at 530. And we lead off the program, as I mentioned, we are exactly 60 days away from the general election, and it was just announced yesterday who will be handling the duties for the upcoming presidential debates. There'll be three presidential debates in total, along with, of course, a fourth debate between um, the vice president and uh, the Democrat candidate for the vice presidency, California Senator Harris. So let's get a look at what's going to be happening, what to anticipate, as we're joined by Dr. Lani Chen. Dr. Chen is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of domestic policy studies and a lecturer at the public policy program of Stanford University. And Dr. Chen, is always a delight to have you with us. Craig, good to be with you. Let's talk first about sort of the, the overarching sense of these debates. It, in recent years, at least, and I, some of us can hearken way back to memories of one of the earliest presidential debates, that between Jack Kennedy and Richard Nixon, and of course we know the outcome of that. If you heard the debate on the radio, you thought Richard Nixon won. If you watched it on TV, you thought Jack Den Kennedy did. And I have to wonder, as we fast forward all these years later, whether or not to a degree these debates kind of become like going to a boxing match. You go to watch your guy give it to the other guy. You're hoping that the guy that your guy is running against is going to take several in the chin and there's going to be a technical knockout at some point and you go home happy. From your perspective, Dr. Chen, do these debates really inform? Do they really shape opinions or is it more just political exercise of like going to a political boxing match, as I suggest? No, you know, Craig, I think your analogy is is a fair one. I don't think that the debates are primarily to inform. I do think they are about each side positioning and, and trying to offer, uh, you know, their best spin on, on the facts, as it were. I do think that, that they impact how, you know, some, let's say, swing voters or voters maybe who are undecided voters, you know, I think it affects their opinion for maybe a few days after the debate. So routinely what we see is, you have a debate, and then you take a public opinion poll, and that public opinion poll does tend to reflect popular opinion about who won that debate. And then within a few days, the public opinion comes back to the previous normal that it was at before. So 
the, the debates are interesting. They can be a source of information, yes. I wouldn't expect to learn a whole lot that we don't already know, particularly this year, about uh, Joe Biden and about Donald Trump. I think we know what we know about them. Uh, and it's just going to be a matter of kind of people reading into it what they will. And as you say, people tend to come with their own preconceived impressions of how the two candidates are going to do. Let's talk a bit about the moderators that have been selected for these series of debates. The first one, of course, will be here uh, toward the, the end of the month, scheduled for September the 29th in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, a well-known and respected voice over at Fox News, Chris Wallace, is going to be moderating that. That's not his first time up as moderator. Your, your thoughts about both Mr. Wallace, along with some of the others that have been selected to handle the all-important moderator duties? Well, I have uh, I have interviewed with and know all of the moderators for the presidential debates. Uh, as you know, as you note, Chris Wallace is a is a terrific uh, journalist. He's quite fair. He's quite tough, actually, as it turns out on on both sides. He, I think, moderated the strongest debate back in 2016. He was a moderator for one of those presidential debates, and I thought did a very good job of asking tough questions of both. Uh, candidate Trump and candidate Clinton at the time. Uh, and so the news that he is going to be the leadoff uh, moderator for the first debate, I think, is a very good one. I think he'll moderate a great debate. Uh, the second presidential debate, um, I-, I believe, is under the command of Steve Scully, who is the uh, executive producer at C-SPAN. Uh, he, has a, he is a, a true journalist. Uh, he is somebody who if any of you have ever watched C-SPAN, you know they're not about editorializing anything. They're really a just-the-facts kind of place. Uh, and Steve Scully is a big reason for why that is, and I think he's going to do a terrific job. And then uh, Kristen Welker of NBC News is going to be moderating the third debate, and I've also uh, been in a situation where she's been the one asking me questions. And, and you know, I've found Kristen, too, to be very fair and uh, also a, a good journalist. So I think they've done a pretty good job of picking the three, uh, obviously, uh, people who support President Trump will have quibbles. People who support Vice President Biden will have quibbles. You know, there's a fair amount of what we might call in sports working the refs. There's already a little bit of that going on. Uh, but overall, I think the Commission on Presidential Debates did a pretty good job in picking these three moderators. I do. I suppose perhaps, uh, Dr. Chen, the only one that, that mildly surprised me, and hearkening back to my analogy of uh, being in a boxing match, and that was Steve Scully, whom, as you point out, is is a consummate professional. Uh, I am a major C-SPAN um, follower, and so I appreciate what he does. Uh, he, he strikes me as somebody that would be an excellent moderator, but there are aspects of these debates. We saw that certainly four years ago, and I have every reason and to believe we'll see that again um, coming up shortly where uh, you need a guy who can not only be a moderator or a gal who can be a moderator but also a bit of a referee <laughs> you think he's up yeah. to the task yeah i think steve is i know he's got a reputation for sort of being you know very kind of fair down the middle uh somewhat placid maybe at times but he can he can you know get in there when he needs to i, I think you know, I think that's the thing, Craig, about these debates is that um, they are better when the moderators control them tightly. They're not good when they're free-for-alls. I mean, maybe that makes for good TV, but as a debate, free-for-alls, and we saw a few free-for-all debates in 2016, they weren't good. Uh, and so it is important for the moderator to play a more aggressive role, and I, I think Steve will do very well in that role. 
Final question for you, um, and that is, of course, the one debate that I think will certainly uh, garner a lot of interest. It will be the first time in that kind of a position, uh, some of the early debates, of course, in relationship to the primary notwithstanding, and that is looking at the debate that will be coming up between the two vice presidential candidates. Uh, USA Today, yep. Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page will be handling the moderation duties there. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Susan is a longtime journalist. I've, I've, I've not been questioned by her, but I certainly know her and know of her work, and we've actually been on television together a few times. I think she's, uh, you know, I, I think she is somebody who has been around Washington for a long time, understands what she needs to accomplish in this debate. Uh, I, I actually think that that debate will be quite entertaining between uh, Kamala Harris uh, here in California and, uh, and Vice President Pence. I think that'll be a very interesting debate, and I think Susan will do. Uh, we'll, we'll do a credible job there as well. So uh, this is one of those cycles where I'm actually quite excited to watch the three main events and, of course, the VP event as well. Undoubtedly. Well, we appreciate the time and the insights, uh, Dr. Chen, and uh, we no doubt will also be here with uh, great enthusiasm at the end of our seats to uh, to see how these debates come about. Of course, the first one, as we mentioned, is scheduled for September the 29th. That will be in Cleveland, Ohio. Our thanks to Dr. Lonnie Chen, Senior Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Director of Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in the Public Policy Program at Stanford University. 5.15 from KFAX. Let's get you an update on traffic right now. Tomorrow, Friday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is due to release its August jobs report to uh, give us a sense of where things are at right now in terms of unemployment. Uh, it was estimated the numbers were probably continue to be right around 10% unemployment, approximately 16.3 million Americans. Much of it, of course, um, the carnage in the wake of COVID-19. And of course, news of this and seeing what's going on with the impact on so many uh, small businesses throughout uh, not just the state, but the country has allowed some, I think, to, to tap into a growing frustration not just because of the economics of it all, but then when you hear things like how well Amazon is doing because we've been forced to bunker down in our homes, we're not going out, we're not shopping, so you still need toilet paper, how do you get it? Amazon. This is not a commercial, just a statement of facts. And so as a result, this company, like so many others that are Internet and as a result COVID-19 friendly, have been very successful and certainly many reasons to applaud the kind of innovation that went into creating these companies in the first place. And while we see that, we also see a growing sense of frustration in those that have attempted to really tap into that frustration, oftentimes taking form in things like downright greed and envy. Now, to be sure, there are Americans that are working two jobs and barely surviving, and other Americans that have no job at all and wish they had at least one. That said, though, the rise in the political language today that seems to be supportive of socialism, even downright communism, might seem to suggest perhaps not only some failure in the middle class, but a huge failure within our education system, as so often the people that spout these ideas really have very little understanding of exactly what they mean. 
A recent article tackles this very issue. Dr. Ann Hendershot is with us, Franciscan University professor of sociology and author of The Politics of Envy, a forthcoming book that is soon to be released. And Dr. Hendershot, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, I'm happy to be on. Thank you. Yeah, you you, very, <laughs> you did a great intro to this. This uh, movement to envy has been bothering me for the past couple of years. You know, and the Amazon thing and the guillotine at Bezos' house, I'm sure you're going to get to that. That's new. I mean, it really has spilled over. I didn't really predict that that would happen when I started writing this book. But I just saw a whole lot of envy going on. And, you know, there are degrees to which, I mean, you're, you're working at a religious institution, we're a religious radio station, we understand that there are degrees to which uh, a sense of greed and envy is kind of inherent to man's uh, fallen condition, man's sinful condition. Right. Uh, we also know that unchecked, that can breed very dangerous things. And when you take that greed and envy to the next level and suddenly it plays out in terms of acts of violence, as we've seen on the streets of many communities, and I, and I want to be clear to understand that, yes, a lot of that has spilled over from protest related to uh, police issues across the country, but a lot of it also is born in pure anarchy that says those that have should not have. And where I think things become problematic is when we engage in conversations that would seem to, to stifle what has been at the very core the engine of American success and prosperity, and that is the ability to innovate, to take the risk, and in doing so, be rewarded for same. And we understand that this risk-reward sort of yin and yang, this balance that exists in the business world, but when suddenly people that somehow have concluded that you have more than you should and they're going to arbitrarily set what that figure needs to look like would seem to me takes heart, uh, it takes aim at the very heart of what has allowed this country to not only prosper, but allow so many Americans to benefit from that prosperity. Exactly. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is kind of famous for that kind of rhetoric about taking away from, and Bill de Blasio um, often says there's plenty of money in this world, it's just in the wrong hands. Now, Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez, is from New York, and her um, one of her aides, his Twitter handle is every billionaire is a policy failure, meaning that nobody should be a billionaire. His name is Dan Riffle, and his Twitter handle, every billionaire a policy failure. And he thinks that we should spread that wealth around. And so, um, and he's very resentful. He had kind of a hard scrabble childhood, you know, grew up with a single parent in a trailer, um, you know, just a, in public housing in Tennessee. So he's very resentful, and he's resentful about his co-workers. He complains about his own co-workers, uh, Democratic co-workers. He said when he started working there, he thought he'd be working with people committed to changing society. And he said, oh, no, they, just, they all grew up on the Upper West Side, and they only conceive of the world as it is. And he said, they don't think like I do. Here's the system. It sucks, and we should burn it down. Now, that's Ocasio-Cortez's aide. Um, now, he's not talking about, <laughs> about killing them, unlike others. And that's why I wrote this article, because I had read and saw pictures of the guillotine in front of Bezos' house. 
in Washington, D.C. They erected a guillotine. Now, everybody thinks it's really funny, and I didn't think it was funny at all. And I really do have a very good sense of humor. It's just that a guillotine for a Catholic, um, you know, that's not funny. It's kind of like a noose in a way. And I don't mean to trivialize either, but a guillotine's not funny. It's not funny to anyone. But the guillotine has been in the news quite a bit lately. There's a candidate up in Maine who her campaign merchandise has the guillotine as a logo. Her name is Bree Kidman. She's running to replace um, the Republican Senator Susan Collins. And um, she just says that she wanted to have this guillotine because it's a sign of revolution. And that's what she wants her campaign. So she's got T-shirts. She's got jewelry and buttons with the guillotine symbol on them. Um, you know, what's ironic about all of this, Dr. <laughs> Endershot, is the fact that many of these people will will proudly state that they are progressives and will embrace that moniker. And yet, in my mind, if they really fully understood the totality of the consequences of what they'd like to implement, it might be better stated that they're not progressives, they're regressives. They want to go back to the old Soviet Union or back to uh, Venezuela or Cuba. All of these examples of varying degrees of either outright communism or socialism that are complete, total, and utter failures. The only ones that have benefited from communism, for example, in Cuba or from socialism in Venezuela would be the Castro family and the Chavez and Maduro families Chavez exclusively, family. and yet they don't seem to well, understand people, that, do I know. They? What they think is it just didn't go far enough. In fact, I have a quote in my book from one of these kind of people who are promoting socialism, and they say there should have been more authoritarianism, more taking from the rich. Now, like wow. if you were, grew up in Cuba during Castro days of the takeover, there was a whole lot of taking from the rich, and that could happen. I don't mean to be an alarmist, but I don't think any of this is really should be taken lightly. Um, you know, Amazon has been their favorite, you know, bad guy because he does have so much money, $200 billion, I, I don't know, trillion. <laughs> um, and it gets bigger. I had to keep going to Forbes to see how much, he was worth just recently because that changes almost weekly lately. Um, but I don't begrudge him for that, and most people don't. It's this young group. Well, it's not all young. Bernie Sanders is one of them. In fact, his field organizer, Bernie Sanders, he has an organizer called Martin Weisgerber, um, and he... He said it was time to guillotine the, the rich. He said that. He was videotaped saying you know, that. And, and what, I, what I find utterly ironic about all of this is in so much as most of the people that protest someone like Jeff Bezos uh, and, and think that he, he should be shut down tomorrow are probably all people who purchase products from Amazon a lot like the people that want to come out and protest, um, you know, development of a new plant or something that would provide jobs. Right. And they say, oh, no, it's going to create air pollution, and they're going to drive to the city council meeting to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amazon was supposed to build a headquarters in New York City, and this group of socialists, you know, were celebrating that they kept it out of New York City, and that would have brought thousands of jobs, needed jobs, well-paying jobs. And they stopped it, and they were interviewed for an, a magazine article in New York Magazine, 
and they were celebrating, and they were asked what what might they build, and one of them quipped a guillotine. You know, so this whole idea of the French Revolution is very romantic to them. Obviously, they don't know their history because they would be some of the first people to go, probably. But um, they want to take money away, and this Cortez, um, Ocasio Cortez, aide. He has a whole plan of how he's going to take money to remove the wealth from Bezos and, and Gates. He, he has a whole plan. He said that we're going to take their stock. We're going to have ownership of Amazon. People are going to own employee-owned companies. We're going to take it over. <laughs> and, and, and suddenly they will, of course, be the ones that will be the arbiters of what uh, is sufficient and what is deemed insufficient, and right. then will adjust, I guess, uh, the, the earnings or ownership accordingly. Not unlike what happened under Stalin and Lenin during the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, where they decided that everybody that was successful needed to have their lands, their, their uh, wealth transferred to the state, and, of course, that experiment lasted barely 70 years, and we know the outcome there. A lot of it, yeah, I guess, really gets back to the heart of an utter failure of the educational system, too, wouldn't you think? Well, I know. They, they don't learn any of this. They don't learn about I mean, there's a new film out now, Mr. Jones. I don't know if you've talked about it with your, with your listeners. Um, but that gives you some, some inkling of how horrific that revolution was and the Soviet takeover, it was horrific. Millions died of starvation. Um, they took the grain. I mean, it was horrible. And they don't know this history. Uh, these, these people that are pushing for communism and socialism, they're proud to be communists because they don't really know what that means. No, they, 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 they certainly don't. And if you've never experienced um, North Korean style or Vietnamese or Chinese or Soviet Union style communism, especially under Stalin, when, my goodness, some of the programs that he was responsible for um, would be competitive with World War II in terms of deaths in the millions, um, it, it, it really defies logic how people in 2020 can be advocating for these failed systems. Dr. Ann Hendershot's article appears, as I think I mentioned in my opening remarks, in um, The American Spectator, and you can get information by going there and uh, checking out the article for yourself called The Politics of Envy Always Ends with the Guillotine, available at Spectator. Org. Our thanks to Dr. Ann Hendershot, Franciscan University professor of sociology and author of the upcoming The Politics of Envy. We'll have to be sure to get you back for that conversation once the book is released. Dr. Ann Hendershot, thank you so much for being with us. 532, let's get a look at traffic. Welcome back to the conversation. Just glancing down at my phone here during the break, checking the temperature. 69 degrees, smoke. <laughs> a little bit disconcerting. I, I laugh with tongue firmly planted in cheek. As we, we learned when we first reported on the current spare of the air condition here in the Bay Area uh, just a couple of days ago, that uh, we are currently at a record. 17 days running of spare the air days. And, uh, of course, there's no end in sight. In fact, the warning has now been extended in through the weekend. All of this, of course, due to the result of what has been more than 1,800,000 
acres in Northern California that have burned so far over the course of the last two plus weeks. You heard me right, 1,800,000 plus acres. And um, we know that it's not yet fully contained, therefore the reason why the spare the air warning will be extended into the Labor Day weekend. Now you wonder, what does this have to do with COVID-19? What are the greater overarching concerns? Well, we get an update now. Dr. Jeff Gusky joins us. He practices emergency room medicine in Dallas, Texas, is a member of the Alpha Omega Alpha, the National Honor Medical Society, and a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians. His work has been covered on every imaginable media outlet from the New York Times, Washington Post, National Geographic, and Alphabet Soup of radio and television networks. And he's also a very accomplished photographer and the author of three best-selling books. And Dr. Gusky, good to have you back with us. <laughs> I don't think there's been any more to say. I'm speechless at your introduction. Thank you. Very honored to be back with you and humbled. And let's uh, uh, let's get a bit of an update first, if you can share some perspective. Yeah. You know, the, this this COVID situation, of course, continues to be troubling. We're issuing warnings here in the Bay Area as folks wish to get out and kind of enjoy the last vestiges of summer here, if summer even really existed, and um, celebrate. And of course, with that, the likelihood of putting themselves into situations and scenarios that may increase the risk of spreading. COVID-19, and while just our day-to-day -day behavior is a concern, I understand that you've also unearthed something that makes the particular, the San Francisco Bay region particularly vulnerable. What exactly yeah. is that? And, and I'd like to break some national news on your show, if I may. Um, it relates to uh, both the risk and the hope. So there's a metric called absolute humidity. No one's heard of it. I didn't know about it until the spring turns out that scientists, the virologists, have known about this for years, but no one could measure it easily. So it was almost invisible to us. And it is like gasoline that makes COVID spread like wildfire. When it's low, COVID spreads very dangerously and the mortality rates increase. When it's 10 or above, not percent, but it's, it's the weight of water in the air, 10 grams or above, COVID hotspots all but disappear. It's not a cure. It doesn't mean it's impossible to get COVID, but mass spread of COVID, which is why we shut down the country, um, all but goes away. And it turns out that I believe this is the missing link because you have hundreds of millions of people um, in, in some of the poorest places on earth, like Bangladesh and Haiti, where the COVID rates are amongst the lowest on earth, they have no social distancing to speak of, no advanced medical care, and yet something is helping them to, to protect them, and it's the absolute humidity in the air because it makes the susceptibility to COVID go way down. So what uh, a month ago today, just by accident, there's a company called Purple Air that makes air pollution sensors. And a lot of people in San Francisco have these because of the fires and the particulate matter. And it turns out that that company, without realizing it, measures in real time the three variables you need to calculate this 
mysterious absolute humidity. And I called the founder, and he never heard of it, but he, he was gracious enough to spend a half a day. And for the first time in history, a month ago today, we were able to create a real-time rendering of viral risk, in particular indoors, whenever there's a, a sensor indoors. And so what I discovered today in preparing for the show was shocking because you think of San Francisco on the water, humid, and it turns out that starting about a month from today um, and spending for seven months, about half of the days um, will be at Wuhan or worse in terms of the risk of the air that San Franciscans are breathing. Now, it only matters indoors. Outdoors, you don't have COVID mass spread. But indoors, when the air gets dangerously dry on this absolute humidity, COVID can spread very quickly. And, and so the simple thing to do is this. If you are a nursing home, a prison, a jail, uh, a school, a hospital, a long-term care facility, and hopefully restaurants and retail and, and cruise ships and meatpacking plants, will get a purple air sensor, and I have no commercial ties to that company. It's, I'm just saying this altruistically. And you keep the uh, air at 10 or above, and the risk of mass spread goes way down. Um, the public can, for free, see on their phone when uh, a place is, is safer against COVID, and that will make people feel hopeful and want to go shopping and go into restaurants and go into bars and go into places that uh, have been unsafe. And, um, and then the, the businesses can, in essence, have free marketing because people will see that their air is safer. So here's the news. When you look at the, the country, we are facing a national security threat because starting this month in uh, the New England area, uh, New York City, you're going to start to see the absolute humidity levels drop. And in many places across the country, like Seattle, will be, you look at last year's chart, the last 12 months, it's under Wuhan for seven months every single day. Remember, that was the first nursing home that uh, uh, nursing home tragedy in the United States was in Kirkland, Washington, across from Seattle. And no one knows this danger. And so... The, the bottom line is if you, if you just get a, an inexpensive humidifier and a simple digital hygrometer, you can get them for like $12, and keep your indoor air between 50 and 60%, you will likely be in the safe range. And then you don't go into places that are not 50 and above. So you carry this little digital hygrometer with you in your pocket or your purse, and you don't go in. And that's how you stay safe. You know, what's what's particularly troubling about what you're sharing, Dr. Guskey, is, is twofold. Number one, um, we Californians know, even as we're coming through the first real significant portion of the fire season, which seemingly gets earlier and earlier, that the worst may be ahead of us, meaning that our driest months in California usually come about in the months of September and October. And, and so not only is that disconcerting, but then let's fast forward into the the change of the weather that usually comes 
late October into November, where suddenly we shift, the weathers begin to come, it gets colder in the Bay Area, we'll see a time change, it gets darker sooner, and so do we do, we all retreat to the indoors. And with that, many homes, including the one that I'm in right now, is heated through forced air ventilation, which of course, as we know, is notorious for drying out the air. So you're suggesting that we're moving into a significant period of time, both outdoors and indoors, of really, really dry air. Really dry air. And it's not intuitive because the absolute humidity is, is very influenced by barometric pressure. And you have no idea when the pressure changes in the air. And that's what the purple air... Uh, helps to tell you because it measures that and it gives you a number. Um, but uh, the the danger is is something that's going to continue for seven months, and and it comes from the absolute humidity outside. In the winter time, we don't have air conditioning on, so uh, the uh, there's nothing to draw water out of the air indoors. In in actual fact, the heating does not dry out the air. I know it it sounds crazy, and it's counterintuitive, but it's the low absolute humidity outdoors that makes the air dry indoors because buildings breathe. And so if you just humidify your air, and many places have the capability built in on their HVAC to just dial in the safe humidity. With relative humidity, if you can get it to be 55%, you're almost certainly going to be in the safe zone. It's so simple, Craig, and so inexpensive. And, and, it's, and the other thing people should be doing is everyone should get their vitamin D level checked. And just like the humidity, the relative humidity, it should be 50 to 60 uh, on the vitamin D level. That's very important to protect against COVID. So bottom line is this. We thought we were through the worst of it, and a lot of leaders are you know, giving us the impression that uh, that we've uh, weathered the storm. The storm is just beginning. We haven't seen anything yet because when COVID hit, it came at the end of winter. Spring weather is antiviral because humidity is a non-pharmaceutical antiviral. It's been known for a long time. We are going to have six to eight months coast to coast, all the big cities. In Dallas and in Texas, we had three days of dry air in mid-June that nearly uh, shut down the uh, ICU bed capacity in Houston and Dallas. Imagine six to eight months. Well, and you know, with that and the change in the weather, and we had some discussions about this uh, on the program earlier in the week, that while we've seen many restaurants, for example, here in the Bay Area, shift to outdoor dining, while the mm-hmm. weather is cooperating, that's a great and wonderful thing. But what do you do when suddenly, you know, your your high for the day is maybe 58 degrees? And I, I mean, I and, and that's still bragging yeah. rights in a state yeah. like California, as, as, as people may be listening over the Internet and say, Craig, ought to try it in Minnesota in December and tell me what you think. But when we can no longer gather and run businesses outdoors... This doesn't leave many options, and it's going to be exacerbated, I would imagine, Dr. Gusky, by other issues such as coming into the normal cycle of cold and flu season. Yes. Craig, we have a binary choice. As this goes forward, COVID numbers, I believe, are going to explode. And, uh, and either we, we shut down the entire economy 
or we humidify indoor air in public buildings and in our homes. And it's that simple. We, it's the only two choices. In essence, what we're doing is we're replicating the safety that comes from places that have tropical climates. Like, look at Hong Kong versus New York City. About the same population, same land mass. New York City has lost something like 24,000 precious lives. Hong Kong has lost under 100 since the beginning of the crisis. The difference is the absolute humidity. It's that simple. Well, and and what's interesting that that I think gives additional veracity to what you're sharing, Dr. Gusky, and that is this. If you look at the list of where the worst cases are, and I have it in front of me right now, the United States, Mm -hmm. of course, sadly, regretfully, number one, we have more than 6 million cases, the total deaths at 191,000. I mean, I I can't even believe Mm -hmm. I'm quoting numbers like that. But what's Mm -hmm. ironic is... With the sole exception of India, most all of the other countries where you have large percentages of COVID-19 also happen to be some of the driest climates. And you're right. When you look into some of the areas, particularly throughout, say, Southeast Asia, you get into Indonesia, the Philippines, and into uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, all of that section of the world, we don't see these high rates, even in places where they have very large populations, not very sophisticated medical systems, and yet we don't see the number of cases. Craig, Thailand, 70 million people. They've lost 58 people since the beginning of the crisis. Taiwan, nearly 24 million people, seven deaths. Even India, with 1.4 billion people, I checked the numbers before coming on air, they have a death rate of 50 per million as opposed to New York City, which is almost 2,900 per million. And so everyone in the United States has got to learn the term absolute humidity and throw out relative humidity because it can, it can be 70 80% relative humidity and be bone dry in terms of absolute humidity, and that's the only number that matters for protecting yourself against COVID. Let's... Um... Let's get your take on something that I alluded to um, a moment ago, Dr. Gusky, and that is that the the air conditions, uh, the air situation, the air quality in the San Francisco Bay Area is some of the worst that we've seen. As I mentioned, we're 17 days running, record days of spare the air, and that has been extended in through the weekend. Does the presence of all of this particulate matter uh, that without a mask we're breathing into our lungs, does, does any of that serve as an additional catalyst for the ability of COVID to spread? Craig, I, I, I want to be totally honest. I don't know. I, it's outside of my area of expertise. But I can tell you this, that in terms of absolute humidity, if your air conditioning is on, that draws absolute humidity out of the air on top of the, well, right now you're in good shape. You know, you're right around 10, 11 on the absolute humidity in San Francisco. And if people go onto my LinkedIn page, I posted a real-time map of the viral safety index so they can see it. They can monitor it going forward. But I don't know the answer on particulate matter in COVID. 
Well, I appreciate your candor on that. Uh, most of the doctors that speak on the issue of COVID seem to know absolutely everything these days. So it's it's refreshing to hear somebody who's so candid. Um, I, let me shift gears here for a moment, if I can. Um, I mentioned we're coming into cold and flu season. What is perhaps the, the, the soundest advice when it comes to um, getting the flu shot? How early should one receive the flu shot and um, it, do we typically see the the encouragement being the most vulnerable typically to influenza meaning younger people and and folks over say 55 60 I think that that we have to just use good common sense I had my flu shot three days ago and uh, and I think that we need to do everything we can to minimize risk and so I think the most important thing, is making sure your humidity your humidity indoors is 10 or above on the absolute or 50 to 60 relative. Secondly, vitamin D. It's extremely important. Craig, it, it, it just boggles my mind that the medical bureaucrats, and I don't mean to be political at all, but that the fact that it hasn't been mentioned that uh, if you have low vitamin D and go into a hospital with COVID, you may have up to a 96% chance of never coming out alive. It's yeah, I, I, I've heard that articulated. In fact, my own physician many, many months ago said, um, if you're going to be indoors a lot more and less exposure to the sun, I need you taking a, uh, a vitamin D pill every day. Every day. Everyone should be doing it. And, and you need to get your level checked because you can be low and not know it. And particular people of color, we have um, a, a, an epidemic of low vitamin D in the United States amongst all of us. Forty percent of people may be low, and people of color are three to 71 times higher on top of that. So it, it, it could be a catastrophe for people of color. It's really, really important that they start taking vitamin D at a recommended dose, 2,000 units per day, and then go to their doctor and get their levels checked. And it should be 50 to 60, not 30, but 50 to 60. Let me ask you about another issue that hit the news today, um, a report that indicates approximately one-third of Big Ten athletes who have tested positive for COVID-19 appear to also have symptoms that suggest uh, myocarditis. Um, yes. How, how alarming, how, how, how disturbing is that when we've repeatedly heard, oh, this really doesn't infect younger people. If you're in good health, if you're under the age of 60, you don't have so much to worry about. And then we find out that some of the premier athletes right on the cusp of, of being in the finest shape they'll probably ever be in their life. And now all of a sudden, fully a third of them that have uh, been tested positive for COVID-19 now have th this potential level of inflammation of the heart. How alarming is that to you? It, it's, it's, I, I want to be careful in, in how I react to your question because uh, we don't know. In fact, when you read the reports, they're, the uh, athletic docs are being very careful to say we're early on in this. We don't know how many um, of these cases will have clinical significance but what happened was they tested all of the positives, um, the COVID cases amongst the Big Ten athletes, and uh, they came back with about a third getting MRIs uh, that showed 
inflammation of the heart cells. So many of those kids were probably asymptomatic, had no idea that they had symptoms. And so for, for young people that um, get COVID, what you need to watch out for are three things. One is if you have a sudden onset of skipping of heartbeats. Two would be sudden uh, windedness when you're working out or going upstairs or you feel out of breath or low on energy. And third would be chest pain, not from heart attack, but there's something called uh, the, epic, the uh, pericardium, which is the sac around the heart. And oftentimes uh, you'll get combined pericarditis and myocarditis. And uh, in any of those circumstances, you need to get checked out by your doc. Very important. So we'll, let's pray that, that it turns out that most of these kids are fine, but it is, it's surreal. You know, we're, it's like we're living a movie. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I got a call from the chief of staff of a very prominent United States senator, and he said to me, Jeff, this absolute humidity thing, it reminds me of the movie, The Andromeda Strain. It's like we're living a movie, but it's not a movie. And, and, and I think that the, um, the revelation about the kids and the myocarditis tells us how critically important it is that we do all we can not to get it. So this idea about herd immunity, personally, I don't buy into that. I think that we need to do our best to, to uh, humidify the indoor air in public places fast and get our vitamin D levels safe. And I want to underscore something that you said earlier so that people are clear on this. Um, we often hear humidity. In fact, you might have an app on your phone that tells you the wind direction, temperature, all that business, and relative humidity. But you're not speaking of relative. You're talking about absolute humidity. Absolute and there humidity. is a difference they're, between those numbers. They're like night and day. You can have very high absolute humidity outdoors and and. Uh, an absolute humidity of one. If you look at Madison, Wisconsin, for example, it may be one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous state capital in the United States because they have numerous days. When you look at the absolute humidity chart, which we can now do because of the Purple Air Viral Safety Index map, uh, they have many days where it, when it's one, it's like as low as you find on the north slope of Alaska. It's so dangerous, so much more dangerous than Wuhan. So imagine the whole country has a, uh, a five, uh, category five hurricane coming at us right now, and we don't know it. And it's going to hit almost all at once simultaneously and last for six to eight months. That's what we may be looking at. The catastrophe that, that they talked about uh, at the beginning of COVID when they you know, shut down the country and never happened. It may happen beyond anything anyone can imagine. I hope I'm wrong. Yes, uh, and, I, and I agree with you. <laughs> I hope you're wrong, too. But I think to be uh, forewarned is to be forearmed. And as I, I mentioned going into um, this conversation, as we head into Labor Day weekend, enjoy the time. Don't do foolish things. Don't run around without a face mask. Don't head into large crowds. Uh, don't, don't buy into this notion that somehow it's just going to magically disappear because as we've seen so far, that is the farthest thing from the truth. Um, Dr. Guski, you mentioned about posting more of this information available. Uh, where can they find it? 
if they go on LinkedIn, Jeff Gusky, G-U-S-K-Y, I just posted a link to the Viral Safety Index for San Francisco and also um, the chart that uh, shows that for seven months, San Francisco, um, uh, in the past 12 months, showed uh, day more about half the days were at Wuhan or worse. Wow. All right, now, that's Frank, an important I warning. I think we'll, I, I hope we. That's an important warning, Doctor Gusky. That I think we and, and hope we all take it to heart. And again, you can get that information. He's got links to uh, those studies available by going to LinkedIn and just do a search for Doctor Jeff Gusky. Gusky is spelled G-U-S-K-Y. Real easy, Doctor Jeff Gusky. And I know I keep threatening to have you back to talk about uh, the amazing work that you've done in photography um, in, in many of the venues of World War I in uh, places, of course, including France, Belgium, Germany. And we'll, we'll certainly do that one of these days soon, I hope. Dr. I'd Jeff Gusky, we appreciate, you. We appreciate uh, both the time and the insights, invaluable information. Again, um, to, to be uh, forewarned is to be forearmed. Now that you are armed, use the information. Do it to protect yourself. Do it to protect your family. Do it because you don't want to rob your grandchildren of their grandparents prematurely. All right, 6 o'clock from KFAX. Let's get a look at traffic.